Hello and welcome back to another episode of No Finish Line Podcast. Today I'm recording live from Marrakesh, the Kenzie Rose Garden Hotel. I've just returned from Zagora, gateway to the Sahara Desert, having completed the Trans-Sahara Marathon. So I'm thinking that since I have a bit of time here, I'll just try and record something about the race while it's fresh in my mind and talk a little bit about how I got here, include uh, some travel tips on how to get into Morocco, what to do around Marrakesh, and some lessons that I've learned along the way. So let's jump back to last week, Saturday 18th of February, day one. Took a flight to Marrakesh with Ryanair. The local currency is dirham. You can't get dirham outside of, of uh, Morocco, or if you can, there's a limit to how much you can actually buy. I think it's a maximum of the equivalent of 50 euro, which would be about 500 dirham that you can bring into the country. So it's recommended that you get the currency exchange when you actually arrive into Morocco. You get that in the arrivals hall where you're collecting your bags. When we arrived, we also picked up a local SIM card Again, it's in the baggage reclaim area. So as soon as you collect your bag, you head over to one of the many kiosks that are selling mobile phone SIMs. And that saves you from having to use your your own mobile phone, which chances are they won't have a roaming agreement. And it will cost you an absolute fortune to be making calls or accessing the internet, which is very, very handy for using Google Maps booking accommodation and generally just finding out information about, about where you are. You can get the SIM cards around Marrakesh, but the advantage of buying it in the airport is you know that you're getting it from a, a reputable source and the staff there speak English and they will also help you put the new SIM card into the phone and set it up and help you to keep your own SIM card safely by placing it into the the pop-out part of the SIM card holder. You have to get it before you leave the baggage reclaim. Once you go to the baggage reclaim, you can't go back in and there's nowhere outside in the main uh, arrivals area where people will be maybe uh, meeting someone off the plane. When you arrive, when you, when you collect your bags, you go through a security and then you're in the main area. There are ATM machines and then a doorway leads you out to where taxis and buses are. Once you go out that door, you can't come back in. So if you're with somebody, you can't go out to check the availability of taxis and then come back in. So you have to walk all the way around to the entry door, which will probably uh, take you three or four minute walk, which is a bit awkward if you don't know exactly where you're going. So there are a few options for getting the SIM card. We used Maroc which M-A-R-O-C, which is one of the main providers. There's a few options with what we could get with regards to whether you wanted mostly data or phone calls. And I think we paid about 30 euro each for two different setups. One had mostly data and less phone calls. The other one had mostly phone calls and a bit less data, but still more than you'd actually manage to use in the month. Outside, we picked up a, a taxi bring us to our Riyadh, which is a 
type of a, a small hotel, a family-run hotel. I think we paid a bit more than we should have paid for the taxi, but we went with what looked like, well, it was a, 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 one of the reputable taxi companies, but you have to negotiate with the driver. So when we were in the taxi with the driver, we checked the price, he told us what it was. I did a quick Google search, and then I then told him that that seemed to be a bit expensive. But we had two drop-off points. So we just, it wasn't extortionate, so we just agreed to, to pay. We were staying in a Riyadh that was close to Jamaa Al Fana Square, which the area was recommended. But what we didn't realize when booking this Riyadh was it was inaccessible to a taxi. So the taxi had to drop us off outside kind of an archway area that was accessible by motorbikes scooters and guys with trolleys but a taxi couldn't get into it we were left with a couple of big bags trying to use google maps but google maps weren't ideal because the laneways were very narrow lots of twists and turns so it was very, very hard to find the actual uh, location of the hotel some guy came out of a shop he looked like the owner of the shop the way he was dressed I asked him where we were going he offered to help so we followed him but I was still a bit on edge, even though we were doing that. It was daytime, so I wasn't uh, too concerned. Then when we arrived at Riyadh, he was looking for money, so I had a few small coins. Getting to him, he asked for a bit more, told him we didn't have any more, and that was it. Went into the uh, Riyadh, which was in a in badly lit corner, down a laneway, so not, it wasn't the most ideal place, but anyway, it was where it was. So having checked in, we then tried to find our way to the square, met up with, with some friends there. And again, there was a lot of twists and turns trying to get there, even though there was a more direct route that we didn't find till the next day. So the the market at Jamaa Elfana Square was something that I remembered from seeing an episode of Michael Palin's Pole to Pole, and it is just one of the most amazing places. So if you do get to Marrakesh, that is definitely a place that you have to visit. It's, it's hard to really explain it. I'm not going to uh, waste too much time trying to do it because again, it's something you, something you have to see for yourself. So we went for dinner in a restaurant beside the square and it was just fascinating just listening to the sounds outside, getting the smells, seeing seeing all the stalls and uh, then we took a walk around the stalls and again so it just it's just something you have to see so going back from the square i was a bit kind of cautious trying to find the way back to the the riyadh again it was down these twisty laneways like something out of a james bond or, or Bourne movie but got away back and the next morning went for a run in that same area and found an easier way back to the square the square wasn't as busy but it had, it, it looked kind of different, the stall to change from ones that were selling food and they were now so, uh, fortune tellers, there were market traders selling fruit and veg, there were snake charmers, there were guys going around with monkeys, charging people to hold the monkeys and get it to photographs, horse-drawn carriages, and again, it, it was just a, an amazing sight to actually see. Now, we were supposed to be going to... A town called Quasarat, which is known as the door of the desert. Quasarat is also the starting point for the the Martin de Sable. Now, when I say starting point, it, it's, the race doesn't start there, 
both competitors are brought to Quasarat and that's where they all assemble and then they're, they're brought into the desert to start the actual race. So our plan was to go to Quasarat, was to break up our journey on the way to Zagora. Quasarat was about a four hour journey and then we had to travel another three to four hours beyond that to get to Zagora. But anyway, we couldn't get to Quasarat because the mountain pass leading to it was impassable due to a heavy snowfall. Not something you expect when you're going to, going to a desert area. So we had to change hotel and traveling is very, very easy now. If you, if you had been doing a similar journey to this maybe 15, 20 years ago, it would have been a, a lot more of an effort. And the, the Riyadh we were staying in was booked out for that night, so it wasn't an option to stay there. So I had been to Marrakesh a few years previous and stayed in the hotel for the World Marathon Challenge when I was on day five of of the seven marathons, seven continents in seven days. So I had an idea of, of where I was going. Plus, on arrival on Saturday the 18th, we went for a, a short, easy acclimatizing run and went up that general area. So I had an idea where I was going. So I booked into a bigger hotel. There's a lot more comfort in the bigger hotel. But it's kind of sterile and you're removed from the heart of the city. Now the bigger hotel, which was a lot, lot nicer, was close enough to the same price as the Riyadh. Now the difference in quality was miles apart. But I'm kind of glad I still did what I did and went to the Riyadh. Because I got to experience what the, the, the real Marrakesh is like. Bigger hotel is like a hotel you, you would find anywhere you can... You're in there, you're kind of anonymous, you go up to the desk, you just hand over your passport, you, you check in, you're given your room key, and, and that's it. You just you just go to a room. When we checked into the Riyadh, we were set down in what looked like a living room of, of this house. The hotel receptionist came out with a tray, with a teapot, a few glasses, and served some Moroccan tea along with some uh, biscuits and cake. So... There was kind of a, a, a different welcome between the, between the two hotels. So the, the Riyadh is a, a tradition, traditional Moroccan house. So, so we picked the hotel partly because it was going to be close to the pickup point for the journey to, to Zagora, which was to happen early on Monday morning. And because we were going to be getting it more taxis, it just made sense to be... And a, a, a bit more uh, economical not to be uh, getting too many taxis. So Monday the 20th, day three, we had an early start. Be before the bus journey, we went for a, sh uh, a local 5k run at sunset. And we walked, the area was quite busy, so we, we, we walked to uh, the area that we had actually ran in before, when we were here for the World Marathon Challenge, did a, a, a loop of a square and a little bit more. F completed the 5K, came back to the hotel, had a buffet breakfast, and then we walked across to the pickup point. We met some of the competitors, and then we boarded the bus and we were introduced to the race doctor and a few other people associated with the race. We thought then that we were heading straight, heading to uh, Quasarat, have a bit of a break there for lunch, and then going on to Zagora. But instead, the journey was a hell of a lot longer, so we, we went directly to Zagora with uh, some short stops along the way just for 
personal needs breaks, get a, get a cup of coffee and whatever. To be stopped off in the town of, Z of Zagora just to pick up some water. I, we took a short walk around the town. We were there maybe five or ten minutes, took a few photographs, back onto the bus, went to the end of the road, and then we pulled off the side onto some sand, and we swapped over from the bus to some four-by-fours. They were Land Rover, Jeeps, and Toyota Land Cruisers. And we then went onwards to Camp Ahansel, named after the owner, uh, Mohammed Ahansel, who is a famed Moroccan runner. Uh, he has won the Marathon des Sables numerous times. And he has he, he was the race director uh, for this event that we're doing, the Trans-Sahara Marathon. So we had refreshments on arrival and camp orientation. And then we were settled into our semi-permanent tents. They had a, uh, like a tarpaulian exterior, but they had a solid frame. They're big enough to stand up in. You were able to walk around. We had beds with mattresses. There were pillows. We had electricity, lights, and all in all, there was plenty of room. So there, there were three of us to the tent. Now, the power in the tent was by generator. So it went out after bedtime or short and come back on shortly before waking time. So you didn't have power 24-7. Now, not that you needed it, but when you're in the middle of nowhere, everything comes at a cost. So the, the, the generator that's actually powering electricity would, would need fuel, so nothing is, is wasted here. So the next morning we went for a short walk after breakfast to find the bearings. And soon after that we went for a run to help start the acclimatization a bit more to the uh, lo local temperature. So it was Tuesday the 21st, was uh, day four in total. We, it was still a day before the race, so we were acclimatizing at the camp, just walking around. We had breakfast, lunch, dinner. We had access to showers. We had access to normal toilets. We had uh, sand dunes close by. We had similar terrain to what we were running on. So we, we made an effort then to go for some runs and walks, but mostly we took it easy. And that evening we had a race briefing, got our race numbers and given our, our GPS trackers that we would carry for the week. We were told how to use them, although we didn't really need to use them, but there, were, there was one function on it. There was an SOS button that was protected by a plastic uh, flap that you, had, that you had to lift open to press the actual SOS button and we were told not to use the SOS button unless it was in, in an extreme emergency. So that was the one warning we got. Don't use the SOS button. You should not need to use the SOS button. There will be a tail walker coming behind you. So no matter where you are, there will always be somebody behind you. The last person in the race is not the last person. There will be somebody behind them. So Wednesday the 22nd was stage one of, of the race. It was a 30-kilometer loop, starting and finishing at the camp. The terrain was mostly flat to start with, maybe for the first 10K, but there was a lot of rocks. It was just a sea of rocks. We had gullies that were like ditches that had to be crossed, and again, it was rocks. Everywhere you went, there were rocks. It was very, very hard to actually avoid them. We got to the first checkpoint at between 10 and 12 kilometers, and beyond that, we started to make our way into the mountains. 
Sinead was, was finding the, the rocks particularly difficult because there was no way to avoid them. We were kicking rocks, standing on rocks. My feet were feeling bruised from some of the rocks protruding through. And then Sinead's toes were, were getting battered by, by the rocks and feeling bruised. So we came onto the, this mountain. We had a, a, a bit of a climb leading up, halfway up, up, up the mountain. I think it was about five... 600 meters and then we had to traverse around the side of it uh, we were contouring around the mountain rather than going up and over we went to the side the actual course was marked by some orange orange uh, paint on some rocks or else there were there were flags where when it, when the terrain allowed for the flag so there was always a marker somewhere close though as we were traversing along the side of the mountain Sinead kicked the rock and I wasn't quick enough to actually stop her from falling. She fell, had a really, really bad fall and bashed her knee off a rock. Now actually, I'm gonna to have to stop recording this now because I can't really continue saying too much because Sinead isn't too far away. And we haven't really talked about the actual injury. So I'm going to say that this podcast is to be continued but i will jump forward a little bit just to talk about the travel and what it's like in morocco we traveled with ryanair coming over was hassle-free ryanair fly into marrakesh on a saturday which which suited us we used uh, when you get your boarding passes most people uh, now would put, have a smartphone, they put the boarding pass onto their phone. But when you're returning from Morocco, you have to have a printed boarding pass. Now, we didn't know that when we were coming over, but when we when we did the check-in online, I was able to download the boarding pass and email the boarding pass to the hotel reception, and they printed them out. There was, was, was no problem with that. As we were traveling to Zagora, we had a couple of stops in small roadside cafes. Now, the roadside cafes, they're kind of dependent on tourism. So when you visit these places, I think it's important to maybe get a cup of coffee, get a bottle of water, just to buy a little something as you're passing. And if you're using the toilet, there's usually an attendant there. And it's kind of expected that you tip the attendant as that's a way of ensuring that the area is kept clean. I think the the recommended tip is to uh, 20 dirhams, which is, no, two dirhams, which is the equivalent of, of 20 cents or so. But most people would give about four, between five and 10, which is 50 cent to a, a euro. On arrival in the hotel, if your bags are brought to the room, again, it's, it's expected that, that you tip. The recommended tip is around 20 dirham, which again is, is two euro. So it's in the airport when we went to the currency exchange, it was mostly hundreds that we were given. So it, it's, it's kind of handy if you can break up the notes that you have and try and get a few small notes that you can use for tipping along the way and maybe buying something in, in some of the smaller shops. Breakfast is quite a simple affair. If you're staying in Riyadh, you can expect that it will be Moroccan tea, 
some juice, maybe yogurt. They have a, a fried bread and some kind of a flat bread. It's not, well, I didn't find it the, the tastiest, but if it's important that you have to have something. If you, you put a bit of marmalade or honey onto it, it's, it's quite palatable. Didn't have any, any problems uh, with food. Some, if you were a fussy eater, you can go to some of the uh, restaurants or, or bigger hotels. And I think, I think that when you're traveling somewhere that's a bit more extreme than you're used to, personal hygiene becomes a lot more important. It's important to drink a lot more water. Make sure you keep your, your toothbrush clean. Carry something like a hand sanitizing gel. And just be extra cautious. I find that that it's a good idea to carry a second toothbrush just in case you happen to pick up some kind of a bug. So when you get yourself clear of the bug that you can swap your toothbrush so you're not reintroducing a bug into your system or you can regularly clean the toothbrush that you're using by filling a cup of boiling water and cleaning the head of the toothbrush in, in the cup. So it's important that you take uh, care of yourself and Pay special attention to personal hygiene. Drink plenty of water. If you're going to be eating fruit, try and get something that needs to be peeled, like a banana, orange. If you're eating apples, make sure that you clean them beforehand. Don't just take them directly from, from a shop. So be especially careful in your... Oh yeah, I'm going to jump back now to where I said this is going to be continued. When we had the accident with Sinead, something stood out to me then, and this is a big, big lesson learned. When, you, when you're going uh, taking part in one of these races, if you ask anybody for advice, we all try to adopt a racing mentality where you try to travel as light as possible. You, you keep everything minimalist. I've seen people cutting their toothbrushes down to finger length to cut the now I think that's that that's a bit overkill, especially when you're using a small toothbrush because if you have to a smaller toothbrush means you to put more of your hand into your mouth. So that kind of takes a bit away from the the kind of hygiene aspect. And plus when your hand goes into your mouth you start to get that uh, dry retching reaction. So that's not something that, that I would do. But anyway to put the point which one together was first aid kit. I got a lend of, of a few bits and pieces of, of a friend of mine who had done the marathon they sab last year. He gave me his race kit, looking like a survival kit, had a compass, a small knife, his first aid supplies, spare batteries, signal mirror, a snake bite kit. But the first aid kit that he had was as minimalist as you can get. And I've actually seen smaller first aid kits. So it consisted of just a couple of plasters. And that was enough based on what he was being told to bring, but he knew it wasn't enough and I knew it wasn't enough. So what we're actually doing is exploiting a loophole. When you're told you have to bring a first aid kit, you know what a first aid, aid, aid kit is and you know what, what, what it isn't, but by bringing something that, it's like being told to bring spare batteries and having uh, one battery or a battery that, that isn't a smaller battery than you actually need for your torch. You have spare batteries, but they might be the ones that fit your torch. So that, that's exploiting a loophole. You have batteries, 
but you haven't got the right battery because you're you're saving weight. I needed a bandage in my first aid kit, and that's something that I would always carry with me if I was hiking in the hills. But I didn't have one in my my race bag. The reason being that it was extra weight. I did have one in my main backpack, back at the tent, but it was no good back in the tent. You've got to be looking at the stuff you need rather than looking for the stuff you need. Luckily, I had a buff in my bag, which I'm sure everyone knows what a buff is, but if you don't, it's like a, a tubular piece of a, elastic cloth that fits over your neck. It, it can be used as, as a hat, used to cover your mouth, used as a neck scarf. People put it on the wrist for wiping sweat out the face. I cut the buff in half to turn that into a bandage and I did have a few extra dressings that I was able to do some emergency first aid. It was sufficient because we only had two kilometers to the next checkpoint, but it wasn't enough. So a big lesson learned is there. There's some things you can't actually scrimp on and a first aid kit I think is really, really important. Uh, now, I had mentioned that this is going to be continued, so I'm going to end it now, and rather than just recording this directly onto my phone, I'll try and do something a bit better with better sound quality when I get back to Ireland. So that's all for now, and if you got anything from listening to this little bit of, of chat, maybe you will tune into the next one. That's all for now. Thanks.